Chapter Twenty Eight of My Southern Home, or The South and Its People. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. My Southern Home, or The South and Its People, by William Wells Brown. Chapter Twenty Eight. Advice upon the formation of literary associations and total abstinence from all intoxications is needed, and I will give it to you in this chapter. The time for colored men and women to organize for self-improvement has arrived. Moral, social, and intellectual development should be the main attainment of the Negro race. Colored people have so long been in the habit of aping the whites, and often not the better class either, that I fear this characteristic in them more than anything else. A large percentage of them being waiters, they see a great deal of drinking in white society of the upper ten. Don't follow their bad example. Take warning by their degradation. During the year 1879, Boston sent 400 drunken women to the Sherborne prison, while two private asylums are full many of them from Boston's first families. Therefore, I beseech you to never allow the intoxicant to enter your circles. It is bad enough for men to lapse into habits of drunkenness. A drunken husband, a drunken father, only those patient, heartbroken, shame-faced wives and children on whom this great cross of suffering is laid can estimate the misery which it brings. But a drunken girl a drunken wife, a drunken mother, is there for a woman a deeper depth? Home made hideous, children disgraced, neglected, and maltreated. Remember that all this comes from the first glass. The wine may be pleasant to the taste, and may for the time being furnish happiness, but it must never be forgotten that whatever degree of exhilaration may be produced in a healthy person by the use of wine, it will most certainly be succeeded by a degree of nervous depression proportioned to the amount of previous excitement. Hence, the immoderate use of wine or its habitual indulgence debilitates the brain and nervous system, paralyzes the intellectual powers, impairs the functions of the stomach, produces a perverted appetite for a renewal of the deleterious beverage, or a morbid imagination which destroys man's usefulness. The next important need with our people is the cultivation of habits of business. We have been so long a dependent race, so long looking to the white as our leaders and being content with doing the drudgery of life, that most who commence business for themselves are likely to fail because of want of a knowledge of what we undertake. As the education of a large percentage of the colored people is of a fragmentary character, having been gained by little and little here and there, and must necessarily be limited to a certain degree, we should use our spare hours in study and form associations for moral, social, and literary culture. We must aim to enlighten ourselves and to influence others to higher associations. Our work lies primarily with the inward culture, at the springs and sources of individual life and character, 
seeking everywhere to encourage and assist to the fullest emancipation of the human mind from ignorance, inviting the largest liberty of thought, and the utmost possible exaltation of life into approximation to the loftier standard of cultivated character. Feeling that the literature of our age is the reflection of the existing manners and modes of thought, etherealized and refined in the alembic genius, we should give our principal encouragement to literature, bringing before our associations the importance of original essays, selected readings, and the cultivation of the musical talent. If we need any proof of the good that would accrue from such cultivation, we have only to look back and see the wonderful influence of Homer over the Greeks, of Virgil and Horace over the Romans, of Dante and Ariosto over the Italians, of Goethe and Schiller over the Germans, of Racine and Voltaire over the French, of Shakespeare and Milton over the English. The imaginative powers of these men, wrought into verse or prose, have been the theme of the king in his palace, the lover in his dreamy moods, the farmer in the harvest field, the mechanic in the workshop, the sailor on the high seas, and the prisoner in his gloomy cell. Indeed, authors possess the most gifted and fertile minds who combine all the graces of style with rare, fascinating powers of language, eloquence, wit, humor, pathos, genius, and learning. And to draw knowledge from such sources should be one of the highest aims of man. The better elements of society can only be brought together by organizing societies and clubs. The cultivation of the mind is the superstructure of the moral, social, and religious character, which will follow us into our everyday life, and make us what God intended us to be, the noblest instruments of His creative power. Our efforts should be to imbue our minds with broader and better views of science, literature, and a nobleness of spirit that ignores petty aims of patriotism, glory, or mere personal aggrandizement. It is said, never a shadow falls that does not leave a permanent impress of its image, a monument of its passing presence. Every character is modified by association. Words, the image of the ideas, are more impressive than shadows. Actions, embodied thoughts, more enduring than aught material. Believing these truths, then, I say, for every thought expressed, ennobling in its tendency and elevating to Christian dignity and manly honor, God will reward us. Permanent success depends upon intrinsic worth. The best way to have a public character is to have a private one. The great struggle for our elevation is now with ourselves. We may talk of Hannibal, Euclid, Phyllis Wheatley, Benjamin Banneker, and Toussaint L'Ouverture, but the world will ask us for our men and women of the day. We cannot live upon the past. We must hew out a reputation that will stand the test, one that we have a legitimate right to. To do this we must imitate the best examples set us by the cultivated whites, and by so doing we will teach them that they can claim no superiority on account of race. The efforts made by oppressed nations or communities to throw off their chains entitles them to, and gains for them, the respect of mankind. 
This the blacks never made, or what they did was so feeble as scarcely to call for comment. The planning of Denmark Vesey for an insurrection in South Carolina was noble, and deserved a better fate, but he was betrayed by the race that he was attempting to serve. Nat Turner's strike for liberty was the outburst of feelings of an insane man, made so by slavery. True, the Negro did good service at the battles of Wagner, Honey Hill, Port Hudson, Milliken's Bend, Poison Springs, Olusty, and Petersburg. Yet it would have been far better if they had commenced earlier, or had been under leaders of their own color. The St. Domingo Revolution brought forth men of courage, but the subsequent course of the people as a government reflects little or no honor on the race. They have floated about like a ship without a rudder ever since the expulsion of Rochambeau. The fact is, the world likes to see the exhibition of pluck on the part of an oppressed people, even though they fail in their object. It is these outbursts of the love of liberty that gains respect and sympathy for the enslaved. Therefore, I bid God speed to the men and women of the South in their effort to break the long spell of lethargy that hangs over the race. Don't be too rash in starting, but prepare to go. And don't stand upon the order of going, but go. By common right, the South is the Negro's home. Born and raised there, he cleared up the lands, built the cities, fed and clothed the whites, nursed their children, earned the money to educate their sons and daughters. By the Negro's labor, churches were built and clergymen paid. For two hundred years, the southern whites lived a lazy life, at the expense of the Negro's liberty. When the rebellion came, the blacks, trusted and true to the last, protected the families and homes of white men while they were away fighting the government. The South is the black man's home, yet if he cannot be protected in his rights, he should leave. Where white men of liberal views can get no protection, the colored man must not look for it. Follow the example of other oppressed races. Strike out for new territory. If suffering is the result, let it come. Others have suffered before you. Look at the Irish, Germans, French, Italians, and other races who have come to this country, gone to the West, and are now enjoying the blessings of liberty and plenty while the negro is discussing the question of whether he should leave the south or not, simply because he was born there. While they are thus debating the subject, their old oppressors, seeing that the negro has touched the right chord, forbid his leaving the country. Georgia has made it a penal offense to invite the blacks to emigrate, and one negro is already in prison for wishing to better the condition of his fellows. This is the same spirit that induced the people of that state to offer a reward of $5,000 in 1835 for the head of garrison. No people has borne oppression like the Negro, and no race has been so much imposed upon. Go to his own land. Ask the Dutch boar whence comes his contempt and inward dislike to the Negro, the Hottentot, and Kaffir. Ask him for his warrant to reduce these unhappy races to slavery. He will point to the firearms suspended over the mantelpiece. 
There is my right. Want of independence is the colored man's greatest fault. In the present condition of the southern states, with the lands in the hands of a shoddy, ignorant, superstitious, rebellious, and negro-hating population, the blacks cannot be independent. Then emigrate to get away from the surroundings that keep you down where you are. All cannot go, even if it were desirable, but those who remain will have a better opportunity. The planters will then have to pursue a different policy. The right of the Negroes to make the best terms they can will have to be recognized, and what was before presumption that called for repression will now be tolerated as among the privileges of freedom. The ability of the Negroes to change their location will also turn public sentiment against bulldozing. Two hundred years have demonstrated the fact that the Negro is the manual laborer of that section, and without him agriculture will be at a standstill. The Negro will, for pay, perform any service under heaven, no matter how repulsive or full of hardship. He will sing his old plantation melodies and walk about the cotton fields in July and August when the toughest white man seeks an awning. Heat is his element. He fears no malaria in the rice swamps, where a white man's life is not worth sixpence. Then I say, leave the South and starve the whites into a realization of justice and common sense. Remember that tyrants never relinquish their grasp upon their victims until they are forced to. Whether the blacks emigrate or not, I say to them, keep away from the cities and towns. Go into the country. Go to work on farms. If you stop in the city, get a profession or a trade, but keep in mind that a good trade is better than a poor profession. In Boston there are a large number of colored professionals, especially in the law, and a majority of whom are better fitted for farm service, mechanical branches, or for driving an ash cart. Persons should not select professions for the name of being a professional, nor because they think they will lead an easy life. An honorable, lucrative, and faithfully earned professional reputation is a career of honesty, patience, sobriety, toil, and Christian zeal. No drone can fill such a position. Select the profession or trade that your education, inclination, strength of mind, and body will support, and then give your time to the work that you have undertaken, and work, work. Once more, I say to those who cannot get remunerative employment at the South, Emigrate! Some say, stay and fight it out. Contend for your rights. Don't let the old rebels drive you away. The country is as much yours as theirs. That kind of talk will do very well for men who have comfortable homes out of the South and law to protect them. But for the Negro with no home, no food, no work, the landowner offering him conditions whereby he can do but little better than starve, such talk is nonsense. Fight out what? Hunger? Poverty? Cold? Starvation? Black men? Immigrate. End of chapter 28. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.